This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. So I'm, I'm talking today on the issue of stress and burnout in, in our teams. Um, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about uh, some research I've done at St. George's and at Great Ormond Street. It's, it included nurses and doctors uh, because we didn't find there was a difference between nurses and doctors. Um, and I think you might be interested in some of the findings. So first of all, I'll say a little bit about what burnout is and how it's measured. Then I'll give you a, a little bit of information on this research that we're currently collecting data on. Uh, then I want to talk about two other concepts. One is post-traumatic stress in relation to work, and the other is moral distress. And the film you saw at the beginning is actually a film about moral distress, which is an, a a different concept from post-traumatic stress and a different concept from burnout. But I would argue all three are relevant to our work. Um, and at the end, I'll try and pull together some thoughts on what you can do for your team. So, stress. We need, we need some of it or we wouldn't get up in the morning and we wouldn't get onto podiums and do talks. Um, so, we need, we need a bit of stress, we need a bit of buzz from what we do. But if we have too much, we get worn out. Um, and really, on a daily basis, that's something we're all juggling. Um, and we're sort of deciding to have a break or walking around the block or um, d doing whatever it is, or having a coffee or whatever it is we do to, to regulate our stress levels all the time, even if we're not conscious of it. But it's a problem if, you, if you're in a situation where you're chronically stressed, it affects your performance. And there's a lot of evidence now in terms of burnout that the, the, higher, the more burnt out a unit is, the higher the staff turnover, the higher rates of staff illness, um, which then in turn, in turn impacts on the workload for everybody else that isn't off sick. Um, there's also uh, a, a clear relationship in the literature between burnout and the rate of medical errors. So our, us being burnt out affects the quality of care of the patient. Um, so it's something that we need to take seriously and we need to understand the causes of um, as best we can. Uh, somebody called Christina Maslach invented the burnout inventory, which is the most widely used measure of burnout. Um, and it's, it's 22 items long, and it covers three different aspects, which seem to be separate uh, dimensions in terms of factor analysis. Um, one is emotional exhaustion, which is what people tend to mean when they say they're burnt out or they're, they're worn out or chronically stressed. The other two dimensions are... Um, lack of personal accomplishment where you just feel you're going through the motions but you're not getting anything out of your work anymore and if if those the pink one the emotional exhaustion and the green one the lack of personal accomplishment carry on for too long you start to notice a sense of depersonalization which and by that I mean a sense that you don't you stop thinking of your patients as people anymore 
that they're just numbers or cases of X, Y, and Z. And you become more detached from the suffering that you're confronted with. Um, there, there, there's been a sort of flurry of interest in this topic internationally in the last uh, five years particularly. And Embriaco, uh, heading up a team in uh, France, did a massive study on nurses and doctors in France using the French version of the Maslach burnout inventory and found that half of doctors and a third of nurses were suffering from serious levels of burnout, which is, you know, obviously a concern for everybody. What there isn't is much information on how staff are faring in paediatric intensive care units, which is what got me interested in trying to do a similar sort of survey in paediatric settings. So we managed to recruit 120 staff. This is at Great Ormond Street. And of them, 29 were doctors, so the majority were nurses, but we got a, a decent number of doctors, and a large proportion of those were consultants. We hypothesized that a significant number would report symptoms of burnout, because it seems that uh, people do in health service-related um, jobs, and particularly in acute settings like emergency departments and uh, intensive care units have higher rates. Um, and we were also interested to look at the prevalence of work-related traumatic stress. So this isn't traumatic stress that is maybe the result of an accident somebody had outside of work. We asked about these symptoms only in relation to something that uh, the participants had seen or experienced at work. And what we wanted to do was sort of look at the prevalence of both of those uh, types of problem and then examine any associations with demographic factors and with the coping strategies that people said they most often used uh, for coping with work stress. And our, our hope was not just to measure that a lot of people were uh, you know, having uncomfortable symptoms, but it was to look at uh, who, who was doing better and was there something they were doing that was helping, you know, that the others might usefully uh, hear about. So, it, you know, it had that aspect to it. The coping strategies, uh, we asked people, we gave them a, a set list, and this list had been generated uh, by a previous project on, on the same unit. Um, so these were all uh, strategies that had some face validity with the population we were talking to. And they were all the things you'd expect, that you'd expect people would come up with if you asked them, how do you cope? Um, talking to colleagues, exercising, um, drinking, you know, the, the usual. Um, uh, those are personal strategies, and I make a distinction between personal strategies and organisationally mediated strategies. So we were also interested to know whether people were taking up offers in, at work to attend more teaching, whether they were discussing things with their manager, and whether they were using any opportunities that were available to indulge in debriefing or reflective practice. And what we found, sorry if the writing's a bit small on the slide, but we looked at the cardiac intensive care unit and the joint paediatric NICU at Great Ormond Street. And what was interesting was, broadly speaking, the percentages were pretty similar. Um, the, the, by far, the most common uh, strategies were talking to colleagues and talking to friends and family outside work. The next three after that are hobbies, so having things to take your mind off work, 
trying to keep cheerful and looking for solutions and pe people used exercise. Smoking was right at the bottom, which is, that's the right answer. I suppose ideally it shouldn't be on the, the drinking was a bit higher up than smoking. Um, but what, what was interesting is we asked people, which things do you think help most? And then we did the statistics on which strategies distinguished between who was most burnt out and who had the highest traumatic stress. And there was no um, overlap. So the things that people thought were helpful weren't the strategies that distinguished the people that were functioning better. I think that's quite an important message. I've since discovered an, another study of uh, surgical an adult surgical ICU that found the same thing. The, the things that people think help aren't the things that determine who, who's functioning best. So these are, that, that's use of the coping strategies on a personal level. If, you, if, you, if I flick to the organisational strategies, the most obvious thing is they're used much less often. Um, and I think that's an issue for us um, to, to consider. So the, the most common... Uh, organizational strategies that were being used were attending debriefs, speaking to seniors or mentors and going to teaching, but they were all under 30%. And quite strikingly, the tiniest column at the end is use, use staff support service. So this is a hospital like the hospital I'm based in that has a um, well-resourced staff counselling service but none of the, or one of the 120 people we interviewed had used it. So and I think that that's another important issue. It's one thing to have a service. It's another thing to check whether people are using it. It shouldn't just be a tick box, ex uh, tick box exercise. And if people aren't using it, we need to know why. So the coping strategies that were associated significantly with burnout were uh, keeping busy. Keeping busy is bad for you. It's official. So you can say a psychologist told you at a conference that it's, it's bad to keep busy. If you find yourself doing that, stop and take it easy and have a rest. You've got my permission. I've got statistical evidence that proves it. So all the people who are most burnt out in our sample of 120 working in settings like yours, um, they were much more likely to be trying to keep busy. That, do, it doesn't, that doesn't help you when you're exhausted. Um, the things that did help and that did distinguish in terms of burnout were attending debriefing. So that's going to forums where they were available to think over what had happened and to disentangle how you felt about it and what, what the other views were. And also look for positives. And that's different to keep cheerful. Keeping cheerful no matter what isn't particularly good for you, but actively making judgments and looking for positive things to hold on to is better for you. That's a slightly separate uh, activity from a cognitive point of view. Um, as I said at the beginning, we also looked at post-traumatic stress symptoms. That's PTSS. PTSD is where your symptoms are so high they qualify you for um, a diagnosis according to the psychiatric criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. But a lot of people um, in, in this situation and uh, actually the parents of the children that we see um, experience many of these symptoms, even if they don't meet the criteria for the full disorder. And these symptoms are quite distressing to be on the receiving end of. 
but they're they're also normal up to a point. So if something very traumatic happens, you you won't be surprised to get some of these symptoms. What what when you should worry is when they seem to be going on for too long. Um, so if you see something particularly traumatic on your unit, you may well be avoid that end of the corridor or. Um, stay away from reminders of it or find yourself thinking about it when you didn't really want to think about it and that's part of your brain absorbing something that's more shocking than usual but if that gets stuck it's something it's an indication that you may need another opportunity to process it in a bit more detail and what we found was that uh, over three quarters of this sample had current symptoms of PTSD in relation to a traumatic event at work. So there were a quarter that had no symptoms, but a lot of people did have symptoms. And just, it was about a fifth had symptoms that were similar to clinical levels. And I'd argue that's worrying. Or, and that it's it, it may be part of the territory, but I think it's something we probably need to be talking about more, just so people understand uh, what what is happening. And and the the other reason I think it's important is we we repeated this survey on an adult ICU at my hospital at St George's, and the rates were lower on the adult ICU, so we had double the rate of people scoring above the cutoff on the paediatric ICU. Um, at Great Ormond Street and we're now repeating the questionnaire on our own uh, paediatric ICU to see if that holds up or if it was just something about the other setting. Um, but And I'd be interesting if anyone has any thoughts on why it might be that, um, that, that traumatic stress is, might be more of an issue in a paediatric setting than an adult setting, particularly when you take into account that the the mortality rate is three, three plus times higher in an adult unit. So you can't simply say it's just a function of mortality rate. So I'd be interested in if, any comments on that. What can you do about it? That's a good question. Um, the problem is there isn't a lot of good evidence in answer to this question. There have been two Cochrane reviews in the last 10 years on interventions for staff support, not specifically in PICU or NICU, but just more wide-ranging. And the evidence is very, very slim. There's some evidence that some interventions work in the short term, but the evidence for long-term interventions is very poor. So I, so I tried, look, after I'd sort of looked up the official guidance, I started to Google things. And one suggestion was bang head here. So there's a lot of stuff on the internet about burnout if you look it up. Some of it was more interesting. Um, there's a lot of information about burnout in the business world. And a lot of this advice is actually quite sensible. Um, it talks about unplugging, you know, switching all your technology off regularly, looking after yourself, getting enough sleep. Knowing when it's you and when it's them, I like that. Sometimes you're stressed for a perfectly good reason. You're short-staffed, and it's not that you're not good at having a work-life balance and that you don't have lots of interesting hobbies. There aren't enough people on the floor, and that's why you're stressed. And that it's important not to lose sight of those very um, sort of uh, pro prosaic reasons for stress. But there are a load of other reasons you might be stressed too. The Royal College of Nursing has issued um, 
a, a booklet, which again is uh, downloadable free on the internet called Managing Your Stress. So that's something you can look up. Um, and I think really pulling everything together, what I'd say is can, the important thing first is to consider it as an issue and as an important issue and regularly look for signs in yourself and in your team of, of stress or burnout. You could even think about measuring it and monitoring it. There is this Maslach burnout inventory. If that's too cumbersome, it's 22 items. Um, there are short versions of it. There's a nine-item version, which we've used in our survey. There are papers with big samples using one- and two-item versions of that um, questionnaire. And we found even just asking people, how stressed are you, not to five, and how well do you feel you're coping, not to five, is, it gives you quite useful information. Um, and I think it's important to remember that the causes of stress are multifactorial. Sometimes somebody's doing fine at work, but something awful is happening at home, and that's just uh, making things harder to do um, at work. And other times that there's something very specific that's going on at work that needs unpicking. Um, we have a duty of care. You have a duty of care to your patients. And if you're... In, in any position of seniority, you have a duty of care to your staff. But in order to be any use to either of them, you have to look after yourself. Um, so you have a duty of care to look after yourself in your staff's interests and in your patients' interests. The personal strategies you can make good use of. You can think about your time management and your organisational skills um, you can schedule downtime and recharging activities. They'll be different for different people. Some people it'll be bungee jumping. Other people it'll be reading quietly and keeping away from people. It depends what sort of personality you are. Um, there are all sorts of mindfulness and relaxation strategies, many of them um, in sort of handy app form these days. It's important to eat, sleep, rest and exercise, just as you advise your patients' families to. And it's important to be a good role model. Are you the last one at work at the desk? I mean, are you giving a message that you're only really committed to your job if you're there 24 hours a day? Or do you make a point of leaving on time? Um, there's, if anyone's interested in more detail on this, that I found a useful self-care plan that originated from a a teacher manual in the University of Queensland, but basically it encourages people to look at how stress shows itself in them as an individual and also to consciously plan nice things to do over the next couple of weeks. So it's kind of prioritising yourself. Uh, I mentioned apps, two of the most widely used um, at the moment for mindfulness, and I have some patients, parent patients, using these. Uh, Headspace and Bodyfy, uh, they're both free and they're available on the internet and on, as apps. Um, Organisationally, I think we should be teaching staff about self-care and describing post-traumatic stress and moral distress, which I'll mention in the last slide. And I think we should be providing time for reflection and debriefing regularly and that that should just be normal. It shouldn't be only when there's a crisis. And we need to be looking at ways to foster staff cohesion. And I think we should be getting regular supervision. In my profession, even at the most senior level, you're expected to speak to somebody at least once a fortnight about your most difficult cases. 
um, and that's a lifeline. Um, I think there should be counselling off the unit, but, but we need, I think we need to look at why people don't use it. Um, and it may be that from time to time, skills in time management or relaxation or thought challenging might be beneficial for teams. Moral distress, which is what that uh, film clip was about. Uh, that clip came from a DVD that comes out this week called Just Keep Breathing. Um, and it, it was launched at an international conference in Istanbul earlier this year. And it's been developed on the basis of some qualitative research about the sort of situations that give rise to moral distress, which is another kind of stress where you might, be, you might be exercising, you might be sticking to the right time, you might be skilled up, but you're uncomfortable about some decision that's been made. And I think we're, we're at the front line of all sorts of awkward ethical dilemmas that I think society is quite a long way behind uh, us on, and that, that there's a lot of moral distress and then something called moral residue. That's the name of what you're left with when you don't feel the thing was handled uh, properly and moral residue builds up over a career and interestingly in our research we found a lot of burnout and traumatic stress wasn't it was independent of experience so these are things that can get you down at any point in a career they're not things that you just overcome in after a couple of years when you've acclimatized uh, so again i would argue there needs to be a forum a forum to discuss this kind of thing and also that it's important we remember the good things. The job we do is very important and we're, we're very privileged and we, we do something that's very important and we shouldn't lose sight of that in, in our efforts to um, examine the, the more difficult aspects of the work. So I'd just like to acknowledge these people who helped with the collection of the data. And thank you for listening. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.